Welcome to the Words Liberate. This is our fifth talk, and the topic of conversation today will be philosophy. Throughout this talk, we're going to be posing the question, what is philosophy? How can we use philosophy on a daily basis? And why we should. We believe that by answering these three questions adequately, we can present the listener with tools which can be made to their self-developmental journey. Now, we will begin this journey using a specific source, but it's choosing needs first an explanation. Throughout our personal lives, the infatuation with self-development, ancient wisdom, philosophy, and how they all tie together their purpose, function, and the missions of them all has ignited authentic and sincere curiosity. And so, upon exposure to the stages of life within the short amount of time we've been here, of course, we have reflected, thought, felt, and lived, all of which has built up, compelling us to learn. And so we became moved by the love of learning. And because of this, we entered the academic sphere as a passionate, knowledge-seeking youth with only the motive to learn for the sake of learning. Here, we engaged in an academic, professionalized, and commercialized inquiry of philosophy. We were exposed, essentially, to an institution's representation of this subject. And in it, we read, studied, conversed, argued for and argued against topics in philosophy, history of philosophy, and many important questions philosophers have posed throughout the time. Upon completion of our degree, we left the academy's institution feeling as if the full proper presentation of philosophy was not adequately presented. And so we continued our investigative studies as we lived life and came upon an individual much older than us from a different time, although so close to ours. We found this individual to be superior to us in knowledge of philosophy, self-development, and ancient wisdom, and how they all tie together their purpose, function, and their missions. They have read many more books, and uh, especially in languages that are so old that they are no longer spoken, with the help of translators, of course, and has had more conversations and has given twice as much time to their thoughts, feelings, and studies. They have essentially dedicated a longer life to the noble pursuit of that which is good, beautiful, and true. And so upon exposure to their works, we have found that we are in agreement with some of their notions and explanations pertaining to the topic of self-development. And so we will begin here at the Words Liberate using Manly Palmer Hall's The Secret Teachings of All Ages. This will serve as the start to the journey of understanding self-development. We are using this source due specifically to its elucidation and digestible definition of philosophy, the good, and wisdom, all of which are main components of self-development. To understand self-development is to first understand philosophy, the good, and wisdom. It's important to note that Hall is simply an interpreter of ancient wisdom. His role has been to piece together the confusing timeline of human affairs while leaving his personal experience and views out. It just so happens in that journey he has found the ancients, by their sincere labors, have presented various solutions to those problems of human life, thus birthing the oldest study in existence, self-development. Since the beginning of time, our species has sought to overcome hardships. The problems yesterday are the problems today, and the problems today will be the problems tomorrow. But if we listen to the ancients, we can piece together the solution that is only available in broken fragments each generation receiving only a piece of the whole. 
and then unfortunately misperceiving their piece to actually be the whole, not realizing each fragment makes up the one true whole. So instead of consummating the completion of the puzzle, each generation selfishly bonded to its fragment and went to war with one another over whose piece is most valuable. The achievements that the ancients have made shows we are then indebted to them for their contribution to self-development. Assuming Hall's work is accurate and authentic to the original's perspective, we will begin using Hall's magnum opus to illuminate a path out of the darkness and from that bring a little bit of lot and order to our lives. Through Hall's synthesis of self-developmental knowledge across the globe and across the times, we can grasp an understanding of the timeless practice of self-development for the modern world. It's important to note that with Hall, we don't imply, insinuate in any way, any notions of idolatry. We praise no man, for we believe men are not to be praised. Instead, it's the works of those men and women that, does, that can be praised. For as we know, men are not judged by their words, but by their works. But in personal opinion, the only man may be worthy of a praise would be an ancient one, Aristotle. In his metaphysics, he begins the, line, the, 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 the text with, all men desire to know. That's a universal premise for every single human endeavor. It's profound. Now, in regards to whether or not Aristotle deserves praise, we simply just reference the introduction to Manley Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages when he quotes Thomas Taylor, who says the following about Aristotle. When we consider that he was not only well acquainted with every science, as his works abundantly reveal, but that he wrote on almost every subject which is comprehended in the circle of human knowledge, and this with matchless accuracy and skill, we know not which to admire most, his penetrations or the extent of his mind. We reference that to show no one deserves the attention idol tree demands. But if anyone was to deserve that title, the closest to it would most probably be the ancients. Like us, they were wrong about a lot, but it's in at least what they were right about that has lasted the test of time and became immortal. From the secret teachings of all ages, we learn that which generates can be subject to corruption. But the words liberate subscribes to the notion that whatever is able to be, whatever is able to generate undisturbed without total corruption as the years go by, is the only proof of immortality. Immortality occurs really where ideas and fruition of those ideas meet and thus last the, the test of time. In this case, the idea of self-development of which the ancients worked with deserves reverence, adoration, respect, and most importantly, perpetuation. That thing which is immortal that the ancients mastered in theory and practice is self-development. And so, we will begin this journey with the introduction of Manly Hall's The Secret Teachings of All Ages. The first sentence says, philosophy is the science of estimating values. From the Latin word scio, S-C-I-O, meaning to know, is where the English word science comes from. And so we can understand then that science is the method used to obtain knowledge about a given subject. That's a definition of science from first principles. It's basically the simplest untarnished definition of science possible. So we can translate Hall's first sentence to mean philosophy is the method to use when seeking to understand the estimation of values. Okay, but it poses another question that's still kind of confusing. What do we mean by the estimation of values? We understand philosophy is the method to use when seeking to understand something, okay. But what's the estimation of values? We need clarification. Values comes from the Latin word volare, which translates to worth. Thus, 
using Hall's statement and some etymology, we then get philosophy is a method used to understand what is worthy and what is not. Or expressed more simply, philosophy is the method used to gain knowledge about what is valuable, right? Philosophy, Hall says, is the true index of priority in the realm of speculative thought. The mission is simply to establish the relation of manifested things to their invisible cause or nature. Okay, what does that mean though? The mission of philosophy is to establish the relation of manifested things to their invisible cause or nature. Philosophy is a process to give us the basic knowledge of the mysteries of life, the cause of life, the purpose of life, right? Philosophy is the only tool we can use to show the proper relation of physical phenomena with its actual or ultimate cause or nature. And so it will show us how, or if anything, happened before our life, during our life, and after. Philosophy is the thing we can use to understand the confusion in life. That's what Hall means when he says it's the true index. It's a, the true index of priority in the realm of speculative thought. Philosophy is that which can find what is the priority in the process just of thinking. And the goal is to establish the relationship of physical manifested things with their cause. And sometimes their cause can be invisible. It can be immaterial. It's, this refer, it, it refers to the part of the human experience which is invisible thoughts, emotions, feelings, memories, interactions. Philosophy is the method to use to make sense of it all. Philosophy can't answer everything, but it's the only one, if used right, can get a conclusion, can get a conclusion the furthest away from error. Hence a close companion of ours saying so eloquently, philosophy is simply the making sense of things. So in continuing in the introduction of the book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, we see Hall references Sir William Hamilton, who says, philosophy has been defined as the science of things divine and human and of which the causes they contain. Okay, what is he saying here? From that, Hamilton is saying, whatever divinity is, whatever humanity is, there is a difference between those two. And if we can gain any, if we can use anything to understand what that relationship is, it's philosophy. Philosophy is thus the science which can rationally and in a understandable form can explain the causal factor to, to divinity and to the human experience. Hall then references Cicero who says, philosophy is the science of effects by their causes. Here, philosophy can be seen as the science of understanding cause and effect, right? Which is present in everything known to man, cause and effect. That uh, seems to be a universal law that governs phenomena. Now note that Cicero exclaimed the following about philosophy. From the book, we see Cicero says, O philosophy, life's guide, O searcher out of virtue and expeller of vices. What could we of every age of men have been without thee? Thou hast produced cities. Thou hast called men scattered about into the enjoyment of life. You see, what Cicero is saying here is that What he's saying here is that first, philosophy is the science of sciences, right? We spoke already about how philosophy is a science, and as we know, a science is the method to use to obtain knowledge. So Cicero then is here saying philosophy is the methodology we use 
to gain knowledge about methodologies of how to obtain knowledge. He says, philosophy is the guide of life. Philosophy is what guides and governs the lives of people. Therefore, philosophy is that lamp that illuminates a path out of darkness. That's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying philosophy is the process, the activity of seeking out virtues, as well as the process of seeking to expel vices. And based off of that, he poses the question, okay, what could we have been without philosophy? What could we in every age of men ever of, that have ever existed, what could we all have ever been without philosophy? He says, philosophy has produced cities. And when you really think about what a city is, that's an unbelievably phenomenal, almost incomprehensible thing. Human beings are so complex, and the fact that we've constructed these labyrinths of so many smaller little systems that make up a whole is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, is absolutely phenomenal. And according to Cicero, it's philosophy that gave rise to that ability to produce cities. Philosophy also has produced the ability to engage in the social enjoyment of life. And so philosophy then, he is saying perfectly here, the translation is simple. Philosophy is the method we use to come to understand life and everything inside of it. Rightfully so, Manley Hall, in continuing in the book, he acknowledges the overall perspective of philosophy today in the modern world from the popular narrative. Here at the words liberate, like we said, we have seen philosophy to be perceived as serving a purpose of nothing more than mental gymnastics and impracticality. No money, no practical use, right? So Hall says today, philosophy has little meaning unless it's accompanied by some other qualifying term, right? Which is unbelievably true. Like for example, um, like, when, like a, um, when a business presents uh, what their quote-unquote philosophy is, right? That's the phrase, I have a philosophy, right? When we say it like that, we understand what it means. Oh, the philosophy of our business, oh, the philosophy of our, of our business, of our company is to maximize profits, to sustain a machine that allows us to make functional products that meet the demands of people, and so on, blah, 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 right? Now, when we present philosophy like that, we know what we mean immediately. When the advocate, the, represent, the representative of the business comes and says, our philosophy is thus, we know exactly what that means. When philosophy has these other qualifying terms, we know what it seems to mean. But philosophy alone is, 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 is a rabbit hole. And Hall also acknowledges how this came to be, right? He observes, he observed the causal factor to the present day misinterpretation of philosophy, which, uh, speaking about how philosophy was broken up. When we look back in history, before it was called modern science, it was called natural philosophy, all right? And inside natural philosophy included every subject of learning. But unfortunately, it was too big. It was a world we could not contain. And so we were forced to bring order out of that chaos, thus breaking philosophy up. And also, it was for good reason. But as the institutions the academic institutions, as colleges rose and developed more, we had to professionalize philosophy, right? We, and by default, we had to specify it. We had to literally break it up. And that's what he's saying here. The body of philosophy has been broken up into numerous isms, more or less antagonistic. 
which has become so concerned with the effort to disprove each other's fallacies that the sublimer issues of divine order and human destiny have offered, have suffered deplorable, deplorable neglect. So he's saying philosophy originally was used to explain and give, and give value and guide our lives. Philosophy was self-developmental in nature, but it was too big and a series of societal phenomena happened. Philosophy then became broken up and separated into a whole bunch of little fields. And now what's left of philosophy is a scattered, confused, lost thing, not knowing its roots and actually attacking its brothers and sisters, its family and self-sabotaging itself. And many uh, philosophy professors manifest this perfectly today. They're a complete and total indicator of this phenomenon going on because simply philosophers in the academic world have forgot that philosophy is about seeking wisdom, about seeking the good, about becoming virtuous, ethical, and moral. That has gone. The noble pursuit of philosophy has left us. And so the noble pursuit of philosophy has left us and in the last place that it's alive in the academic world, the academy makes it seem like the only people who can engage in philosophy are the professors. Only way you can make money in philosophy is being a writer or being a professor, that's it. They embody that, they're the ones that put forth that notion, which like we said already is a wrongful misinterpretation and more so a detrimental perspective to have, which can potentially lead to desolation in a society. Paul brings up the main functionality of philosophy in this introduction by saying it serves as the stabilizing influence of human thought. What does that mean? Philosophy's main function is to serve as the stabilizing influence of human thought. He's saying here that the function and the purpose of philosophy is to serve that which can bring a little law and order out of chaos. That's what philosophy is supposed to do. It's supposed to make us understand things, to get down to its core and travel through its depths and piece all the little pieces together and make sense of it. No more confusion, no more darkness. It's illuminating inherently. He says, because of the intrinsic nature of philosophy, right, which is the love of wisdom, and therefore it is the love of wisdom that compels us to act in a specific way, the specific way being virtuous, that's supposed to prevent man from engaging in unreasonable codes of life. Because of the love of wisdom and wisdom being the good, healthy mind, healthy emotions, healthy body, philosophy is supposed to make us. It governs our decision, it governs our decision making so we do not manifest or produce or bring into fruition unnecessary destruction, right? We can see all of this philosophy is self-developmental. Philosophy is the process of self-development. Self uh, philosophy is the path to obtain the good, virtue, morals, everything that is good that we see emulated embodied in art in film in movies and novels and myths all of these things that uh, being exposed to the trials and tribulations of life coming out twice born all of these things philosophy is the process the system to use to understand that so we return back to the book we return back to thomas taylor uh, giving his opinion of aristotle's introduction in his metaphysics after saying that Aristotle acknowledged and comprehended every subject inside the sphere of human knowledge. He says that Thomas Taylor says um, on the philosophy of Aristotle in regards to Aristotle's perspective of philosophy, basically, the goal of philosophy is to perfect, is to arrive at perfection through the virtues. Thus, philosophy is a pilgrimage, right? Only to arrive at perfection. But we first must use virtues as we navigate through the adventure. And so the goal of philosophy 
that happens in the mental, the thinking, the contemplative part of philosophy is to arrive at the goal of being in union with the one principle of all things. Whatever that one thing is that's constantly weaved through everything else, that's the mental goal of philosophy. Now, just to offer some value to this, there is here, uh, this is here saying that philosophy makes you good essentially, but a lot has to happen first to arrive there. We have to undergo a regeneration, a rebirth. It, happen, it happens only by subjecting ourselves to that dark, scary place, that dark place that can be unsettling, uncomfortable, and unfortunate at times, right? Which is why philosophy has a stereotype of making people depressed, ruminating, and living only in the realms of their scattered minds. Proof of this can be seen in the Greek concept of aporia, right? Which in Plato's Dialogue Meno, we learn that Socrates describes it as a purgative effect of reducing someone to aporia, right? It shows someone who merely thought they knew something that he does not in fact know. And it then instills in him a desire to investigate it, right? So aporia is the process of you being exposed to something that humbles you. Maybe it's you meeting that woman, that man, uh, being a, a parent to a child, facing some uh, phenomenon in nature, whatever it may be. It, you, you, you're exposed to something that humbles you and shows you that you really don't know everything that you thought you did, right? And sometimes in life we think we know it all and sooner or later we get humbled and that can be scary, uh, that humbling sensation after that, right? So, um, Surrendering, surrendering to the reality of that, that can be difficult, but it compels, it instills a curiosity in you, which compels you to investigate it. And then that journey begins. For some, philosophy starts with depression and darkness and turns into something to, to a goal. Hence, the, the traditional goal of philosophy from a traditional Greek perspective is embodied in the concept ataraxia, which is known as the goal of a philosopher. It means robust tranquility more so freedom from distress and worry. The fact that philosophy is associated with entering aporia and obtaining ataraxia shows philosophy is a path out of darkness, right? It shows philosophy is the process of rising out of the darkness to light, then releasing oneself back into darkness, coming out into light over and over again, right? And it's not here an endless desire, it's an ever, everlasting love, the love of yourself, the love of life, right? Realizing that all these things we're subjected to are opportunities to learn and grow. Anyways, Aristotle also thought philosophy to have a practical goal, which was to arrive at perfection through the process of becoming virtuous, like we spoke about. For Aristotle though, philosophy was twofold, practical and theoretical. The former was about or was concerned with ethics and politics, okay? Ethics being morality, right, wrong, good, and bad. Politics being the framework, the mapping out of a logical structure that a city, state, and country can live in and therefore allow all of them to live in a harmonious coherence. The other side, theoretical, was concerned with logic and physics, right? Metaphysics, which is the second branch of traditional philosophy, which as we know was concerned with existence, that which is beyond the physical essentially, Aristotle perceived metaphysics to be, again, a science concerning the substance which has the principle of motion and rest inherent to itself, right? He believed the soul was that by which man first lives, feels, and understands. Therefore, the soul is assigned three faculties, nutritive, sensitive, and intellective. But he further 
considered the soul to be twofold, right? Rational and irrational. And in some particulars, Aristotle defined wisdom to be the science of first causes. So wisdom is the study of first causes that come into existence. But he tabulated philosophy to be in four parts, physics, ethics, metaphysics, and dialectic, right? Dialectic is just dialogue, conversation. Uh, all, all we're extracting here from Aristotle's definition of philosophy is the single, uh, all, all the information we've referenced of Aristotle on philosophy from the secret teachings of, of um, All Ages by Manley Hall, translated by Thomas Taylor, uh, at least the Greek from Aristotle, of which Hall used and put into a secret teachings of All Ages. We can see all Aristotle is talking about is that philosophy is simply an ethical system. It's self-developmental in nature. The fact that he's saying philosophy is the process of arriving at perfection through virtue, that's philosophy, right? By default, that's self-development because self-development is an ethical system, right, wrong, good, bad, all of those cliches, right? Now, in, in, continu in continuation of the introduction, uh, we come into the question of truth, right? Because self-development philosophy, these are both journeys. These are both quests, pilgrimages. We're going through a maze. We're going, this is an adventure we're, we're undergoing, but we're trying to arrive at some place. And the place we're trying to arrive at, it's presupposed that it's true, that the destination is true, right? Um, it's a path to a goal, a means to an end. And it poses the question, is the means the correct one to arrive at the end? Is, is the path the correct one to get us to the right goal, right? We're doing something to get something else. More specifically, we, we are being virtuous to obtain wisdom. But on any quest, any path, truth will come into play because one can, uh, we can be posed with the question, well, how do we know that's the case? How do we know that's accurate? And how do we know that, for instance, here, the words liberate is presenting uh, nothing more than subjective interpretations of something and having no grounding in reality? That's a valid question to ask, right? It would be wrong for us to not be critiqued with that question. So it's interesting, even in this book, Hall says, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but something along the lines of, um, in regards to the claims made by the ancients, we make no claim of the validity herein presented. And what he's saying here is that, um, he's saying this because from his personal experience of studying ancient wisdom long enough to know, if, if, if he's gonna learn anything, he, he knows it's any dogmatic utterances are foolhardy, right? It's indicative of the notion, never follow anything dogmatically because you can never be 100% correct. There's always room for new perspectives and possibilities. It rings of the Socratic ignorance. If I know anything at all, if I know one thing, it's at least I know what I don't know, right? So should we be skeptical when presenting information and when investigating this stuff? Should you, the listener, be skeptical when listening to the information we're presenting? Uh, I mean, again, from the introduction, we learn from Sextus and Pyrrhus that those who seek must find or deny they have found or can find or persevere in the inquiry. Those who suppose they have found truth, they are called dogmatists. They who think it to be incomprehensible are academics, and those who still seek are the skeptics, right? All pulling this from, again, still the introduction in Manly Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages, all pertinent to philosophy and self-development, us now posing the question, is what we're talking about accurate? What do we do? What type of perspective should we have when you are listening to this and when we're presenting this? Should we be critiqued? Should you critique us? Which one are we? Are we, are, is the words liberate here saying, we found truth, here it is, or are we saying, 
uh, it's incomprehensible? Or are we saying, uh, we don't know, we're still seeking? Obviously, we aren't dogmatists for obvious reasons. And we can't be those who think truth to be incomprehensible because we have to try first. Right? We can't conclude it to be incomprehensible by just observing it. We have to enter that world, subject ourselves to it, try it out and see for ourselves. Uh, so that lives with us. So that leaves um, the, the only notion left skepticism because it's evident we are still seeking. And therefore, by that definition, I guess we hold the perspective of the skeptic. But upon reflect, and you too should hold the, the, the perspective of the skeptic. Be skeptical, be skeptical of everything we present, but it still poses the question. Or, no, let me refrain that. Let, let me reword that. It, um, we want to add more to that because although we are still seeking, the words liberate is doing nothing more than sharing our findings. But the attitude of skepticism hall says, towards the knowable is summed up by Sextus Empiricus again by the following words. But the chief ground of skepticism is that every reason, for every reason, right, there is an opposite reason equivalent, which makes us forbear to dogmatize, right? So what he's saying here is that the main holding of skepticism says that every, for every single reason, reason being a potential truth, right, to every possible reality it could be there is an opposite reaction of the same thing, right? So which one is it now? Apparently, skepticism says, let's never make a decision because we can't make any decisions. To make a decision, we have to choose one, but to the skeptical, they only see things through duality, right? And so according to the skeptics, in regards to whether or not the dog walked on the grass, the skeptic cannot say. Because the dog walked on the grass has just as much truth potential as the, the dog did not walk on the grass. So the skeptic says, we don't know. There's no way to find out. We don't know. The skeptic says, we cannot dogmatize. We can't pick one. We can't pick a truth and, and move forward and go with it because they both have equal truth potential and there's no way to get past these two, right? And so the skeptic tends to question excessively, originally feeling as if they, they will get somewhere, but then realizing that there is nowhere to go. It's, it's endless questioning. And although there is benefits of the skeptical perspective, it's not the way. You see, it's important to use skeptical, it's important to use the method of skepticism. But I mean, to be a, to be a skeptic is almost paradoxical of its inherent concept because the skeptic says we can never dogmatize, but if you're a skeptic, if you're a skeptic you're dogmatized in that in itself, therefore producing a paradox. So um, we, embody the ancient Greek term, which means suspension of judgment, right? So what we're doing is we are seeking, being exposed to life, absorbing, and suspending judgment. We will hold things and present them as such, and if we feel they need to be reformulated as time progresses, we will do so. But from this talk thus far, we can see um, we've now presented an adequate somewhat first basic definition of philosophy, right? And it happens in many ways, but I think, or it's perceived that it has many definitions, many facets, but as we go through this slowly, as we continue in, 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 in Hall's book, we will, we will naturally find philosophy, the definitions of philosophy and self-development are both, um, Unfolding, They're going through evolutions here at the words liberate. And we will see that journey as we present. But 
to be simple, to leave with something <clears throat> concrete. Philosophy is simply the making sense of things. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. It's when we have a love for the betterment of ourselves, of our planet, of living organisms, this compels us to behave in a specific way, a specific way that makes us much more conducive to a harmonious environment with ourselves and with the world we're in. And in that alone, we can see the importance of philosophy. Uh, luckily enough, we were fortunate enough to see here that philosophy is a science. A, a sci philosophy is a science we can use to, uh, to come to understand and gain knowledge. And as we go through this, we'll see the validity in that. We'll see it's not just semantics when we say that, that all philo oh, philosophy is just science. We're taking two words and being creative and coming together. No, philosophy is literally a science. And we're going to show that, but we're, we're going to show that as we get into the technical application of philosophy that one would learn in academia, right? The process of going through epistemology, metaphysics, and ethics. We'll get to all that. But for now, we've established a good cornerstone that will allow us to build a beautifully balanced, constructed piece of architecture of which all is a big hole with smaller parts that have the definitions of wisdom, the good, self-development, all of which make up philosophy, all of which make up a practical care package which can be of aid to your self-developmental journeys. And with that, consumato mest.